just uh, gotten uh, someone on the phone within Syria, and it's very difficult to do this. So we want to go right to Razan Zaituna, who is a lawyer, a human rights activist in Damascus, who's been reporting on the recent protests for various online networks. Um, welcome, Razan, right now. What is happening where you are? So there were 24 people that killed in different areas around Syria, from Homs to Hamad to Latakia, and some suburbs of Damascus. Uh, there is people who got killed in Arabin, in the suburb of Damascus, five people got killed, one in Al-Muadamiya, one in Al-Kiswa, and 14 years old child in Zabadani, also suburb of Damascus. So today there will be a funeral of those people. Uh, one funeral was started in Arabin. Uh, there was more, uh, more than 40,000 people who participated in this funeral, which, which turned to a protest, a huge protest, chanting against the regime and for freedom. And we got the news now that the security and the army shoot against the protesters and used the tear gases and arrested many people in attempt to, to end this protest. Welcome back to What Happened to Syria, a podcast about Syria, the Syrian people, and their impact on the wider world since 2011. This week, we have another episode that I ended up having to cut short because I have a bad habit of biting off more than I can chew, as the old saying goes. I'll come up with something like, I'll do an episode on protest leaders and other activists in the Syrian revolution, and then I end up having to select a few out of hundreds of amazing people. There's hundreds, if not thousands, of awesome stories. There are, there are so many awesome people who put their lives on the line in so many different ways to non-violently rise up and make their grievances known for the first time in a totalitarian state where open dissent could get one disappeared. There are far too many awesome people to cover in a single episode. So we'll have to make sh- so we're going to have to make this a recurring segment and pick a few people to highlight. If you feel we overlooked someone important, we will examine them in a future episode. But go ahead and feel free to hit us up on Twitter at SyriaPod, or email us at whathappentosyriapodcast at gmail.com. We, appreciate, we always appreciate listener engagement. This week, we're going to take a break from the dates and the number of people protesting or being killed for protesting to talk about the people who helped organize or at least inspire the protests. The Syrian revolution was, like most protest movements in 2011, a leaderless phenomenon. But there were individuals who took it upon themselves to organize, to gather as many people as they could, and accept the risks associated with being a high-profile dissident in Syria. The number of activists who risked their lives, their freedom, and sometimes even that of their loved ones, is too many to list in a single episode. Instead, we're going to focus on a few of them at a point when the protests were just starting. If your favorite hero of the Syrian revolution is left out of this episode, we promise you they will be examined in a future episode. Trust me, we will get to Fadwa Soleiman and Abdel Basset al-Sarut. They're coming, I promise you. But go ahead and feel free to email us, DM us on Twitter, or send a message on Patreon. The people we talk about today stood up and spoke out when it was dangerous to do so. Each one of them paid a price for it, some far more so than others. Kazan Zaiduna, how are you keeping yourself safe? I'm in hiding as hundreds of activists 
and maybe thousands around the country, hiding, moving around from place to place, uh, trying not to go to places where there is a lot of checkpoints, not to use mobile and phones and so on very much. So I'm just taking some procedures to protect myself, but at the end everybody is under the risk of getting arrested and it's okay we are we are in our country i'm very happy that i'm in inside my country in this historical moment and that i will witness the moment of freedom when it comes very soon i hope syria prior to 2011 was not a place where rule of law was the norm People could be arrested under any pretext, tortured for any reason, and threatened into silence afterward, even if they were found innocent of the original charge. The only compensation one would receive after being brutalized by one of the dozen or more intelligence agencies, or Makabarat in Syria, was being released from custody and spared from death or further torment. There was no hope in appealing to the regime-controlled justice system. Even the legal counsel representing the accused could find themselves detained on the same charges as their client. One such example is Anwar al-Buni, a lawyer who provided legal services to political prisoners throughout his career, oftentimes pro bono, who ended up getting arrested in 2006. He was released and fled the country after spending years in prison. He was then granted asylum in Germany and, by sheer random chance, randomly bumped into one of the Mokabarat officers who tortured him. That This other guy, Anwar Raslan, had also fled from Syria and been granted asylum in Germany. I'm not going to spoil what happened afterward because there's another podcast out there called Branch 251 that did an excellent job telling that story. I, I encourage everybody listening to this to check out Branch 251 to hear about an unprecedented criminal trial for crimes against humanity. This podcast isn't affiliated with them, but I wanted to show them some love because Branch 251 really is a damn good podcast. I wanted to start with a look at Amwar al-Buni because I figured at a, a defense attorney getting arrested for defending people, arrested for political activism, says a lot about the state of law and justice in Syria before and during 2011. If you're starting to get the impression that a lot of people had a lot of issues with a government that was all too willing to arrest and torture them, several million Syrians would agree with you. One of these people is Zuhair al-Atasi, an early leader in the Syrian revolution who we briefly covered in a previous episode. She became an activist for democracy and human rights after growing up in a prominent political family. She participated in the Damascus Spring and was active in multiple banned political organizations, taking a consistently defiant and outspoken stance against the Syrian government's routine autocracy and torture. This led to her participating in some of the earliest protests in 2011, where she, when she gave interviews on March 15th to several media outlets to explain what the protesters wanted and how the regime was responding, she was arrested the very next day and eventually fled the country after being released. She went on to become a prominent political figure within the Syrian diaspora. Next, we turn to another high-profile dissident and lawyer, Mazen Darwish. He also had a history of activism in Syria prior to 2011, and was arrested not just once but twice that March for organizing and participating in protests. His story took an interesting turn when the protests became more intense 
and the regime started to become more desperate. Sam Daguerre writes in his book, Assad or We Burn the Country, how Mazen Darwish was brought to General Mohammed Nassif, Syria's deputy vice president for security affairs. Nassif claimed that the regime wished to negotiate with leaders of the opposition. Now we turn to the book. Quote, It was already 4 a.m. Mazen had spent almost five hours with Nassif. They agreed that Mazen would come to his office in the city later that day and hand over a list of demands, but not the idea of using a public square as a forum. The list Mazen gave him, some hours later, included a dozen points, such as releasing detainees, restructuring the macabre, and ending its blanket immunity, unquote. Yeah, the macabre literally had blanket immunity for all actions written into Syrian law. You can't make this stuff up. It's unbelievable. All right, back to the quote. Quote, ending its blanket immunity and drafting a new constitution to create an independent legislature and judiciary. Unquote. Okay, one last thing. Doesn't that sound like the bare minimum? I mean, come on. Like, that's, that's, what the, that's what the state that Syria was in in 2011. Even asking for the bare minimum of an independent legislative branch and judicial branch, stuff that people in, in free countries take for granted every day. They were having to campaign for stuff as basic as that. All right, back to the quote. I'll stop interrupting myself. Quote, The decision is not up to me, said General Nassif. I am simply the president's security advisor. I will take these papers to the president. Expect a call from me tomorrow. They met again the day after. Nassif told Mazen that Bashar al-Assad had agreed to repeal the emergency law, which he had already raised as a, pro as a possibility in a press conference. Mazen Darwish said that this step would be meaningless without also curbing the Makabarat's powers and making necess necessary constitutional changes. These things will take time, but we are open to discussing them all, said Nassif, as he held up the papers which had illegible scribbles in blue in the margins. Look, here are two sentences handwritten by the president himself. He will use them in his upcoming speech. Unquote. I'm going to go ahead and spoil a future episode by saying the regime did not honor that agreement. Mazen Darwish would continue campaigning for democracy and human rights in Syria. He would go on to be arrested again and spend three years in prison. The final arrest saw him apprehended alongside several high-profile activists, including his wife, Yara Badr. Yara Badr is a journalist whose work focuses primarily on human rights violations. Her work has been recognized by Amnesty International, among other organizations. She co-founded the Syrian Center for, Me for Media and Freedom of Expression with her husband. She also experienced harassment and repression from the regime in the years prior to 2011, and was arrested in 2012 alongside her husband and other activists. Most of them, including Yara, were released after a few days. Mazen Darwish was eventually released in 2015. He and Yara Badr fled the country and ended up among the hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees who were later granted asylum in Germany. Mazen Darwish and Yara Badr managed to escape with their lives after several grueling years. Another couple, known famously as the Bride and Groom of the Revolution, experienced a far more tragic outcome. Nura Ghazi, a lawyer, human rights activist, and writer who is inspired to study law after her father spent years in prison for political activism. She studied law at Damascus University and participated in the early 2011 protests. It was in that April she met a man named Basil Kartabel, also known as Basil Safadi, 
a software developer from Damascus of Palestinian descent. The two got to know each other while risking their lives to protest against the regime, and fell in love over the course of 2011. They got engaged at a time when regime crackdowns against activists were becoming more aggressive, and open warfare was beginning to take place in small, isolated pockets of the country. On March 15, 2012, the one-year anniversary of the Syrian revolution, Basel Kartabel was arrested by the regime. This happened only a few days before his and Nura's marriage certificate was to be signed. Their wedding would take place during prison visits, between periods where Basel was interrogated and brutally tortured. On October 3rd, 2015, Basel Kartabel was taken from the Adara prison to an undisclosed location. His status remained largely unknown for the following two years, until Nura Ghazi reported seeing a copy of Syrian government documents confirming he had been executed. Nura relocated to Lebanon to continue her work as a lawyer and human rights activist. She continues to campaign for the rights of people detained and forcibly disappeared in Syria. Basil and Nura's story shows what type of risks dissidents in Syria have taken since 2011 and the oftentimes tragic outcomes that result. But we should also look at someone who knew she faced these risks and decided it was still worth it to stick her neck out and help counter the regime's propaganda about protesters. Razan Ghazawi was born in Florida to parents from Syria, who soon left the United States. She came to prominence in the late 2000s as a blogger writing opinion pieces about protests and human rights in the Middle East. It was only natural that she ended up at, she ended up at the Syrian Center for Media and Freedom of Expression. She played a major role coordinating media outreach by activists across the country, using her laptop and 3G internet connection as her means of non-violently resisting the Assad regime. Razan Ghazawi was arrested and interrogated multiple times for her activism. In, what, in one such incident, in, in February of 2012, she was arrested alongside Mazen Darwish and Yara Badr, as well as other employees of the Syrian Center for Media and Freedom of Expression, during a raid on their office by security forces. She was eventually released and fled the country that October. Today, Razan Ghazawi is a PhD candidate at the University of Sussex. She is among a large community within the Syrian diaspora who were forced to leave after being detained and interrogated by the government for political activities. But we must not forget the large number of activists and protesters in 2011 who are either still in prison or died in detention from execution, torture, or other horrors. People like Basel Kartabel, for example. We honor those who survived to tell their story and those who paid the ultimate price. We will continue to report the regime crimes and demand the release of all political prisoners. Let's not forget our prisoners like Mazen Darwish, the brave journalist and activist who has been in prison for almost two years now. We cannot forget that every prisoner face the threat of torture and death and that over 4,000 prisoners have been killed thus far. Finally, the war conditions allow you to see only the ugly and painful side of the picture, but there is amazing bright side to be seen on the same picture.
It's about the awesome people, women and men, who are working silently on the ground to achieve their dream of freedom and justice, improving daily that nothing, not even over 100,000 deaths or harsh siege or the betrayal of the international community can ever defeat the will of people who has a dream and faith in the future. For all those brave people, I bow in respect. So, let's keep working together to get their life less suffering and their future more available. Thank you to everybody for giving me this chance to get my message out. Razan Zaytuna was a human rights lawyer who spent the decade prior to 2011 working with a small circle of activists on multiple civil society initiatives, including the Human Rights Association of Syria and the Committee to Support Families of Political Prisoners. She took part in the earliest protests against the regime and was accused of being a foreign agent by state media on March 23, 2011. She was thus forced to spend years in hiding, working underground to help coordinate a human rights-centered revolution and document atrocities perpetrated by Assad loyalists. Razan Zaituna managed to, to evade capture, but still paid an unfortunately common price for being a high-profile opponent of the regime. Her husband, fellow human rights activist Wael Hamadeh, was arrested in May of 2011. He was, according to Amnesty International, quote, subjected to torture and other ill-treatment, unquote, before he was released the following August. Razan and her husband continued to work underground to document human rights violations and organize protests until December 9, 2013. They were reportedly kidnapped with two of their colleagues, the poet Nazim Hamidi and veteran activist Samira Khalil, in a town called Duma. The area at the time was controlled by a hardline Islam by a hardline Islamist rebel group known as Jaish al-Islam. We'll have a lot more to say about Jaish al-Islam and its leaders in future episodes. For now, the relevant point is that they are the prime suspects for the disappearance of Razan Zaituna, Wael Hamadeh, Nazim Hamadi, and Samira Khalil, who have gone on to be dubbed the Duma Four by Syrian revolutionary activists. Jaish al-Islam stands accused of routinely abducting, torturing, and murdering people during the span of time they controlled the eastern Huta region, as well as forcing young boys into their ranks as fighters and using captives as human shields. Actually, they're not. That, those aren't allegations. Those have been proven. There are pictures of Jaish al-Islam using people in cages as human shields for bombardment from the regime. A former senior official and spokesman for the group was eventually arrested in France on a war crimes indictment in early 2020. The story of the Duma Four shows how nonviolent activists who were mercilessly hunted by the Assad regime went on to be victimized by the armed opposition groups whom they came to depend on for protection. However, it also disproves a common narrative about Syria that there are, quote, no good guys involved, unquote, or some other cliched way of saying there's no side worth supporting, 
One does not have to excuse Jaish al-Islam's atrocities to highlight the Assad regime's far more extensive brutality, and the brave actions taken by activists who remained peaceful up to the very end. Syria is not a regime-rebel binary, as various media outlets constantly claim a majority of people who live there are civilians, people who have never picked up a gun. The Syrian revolution was, and still is, a popular revolution organized by activists and lawyers. Armed rebels from a variety of ideological camps are not representative of the protesters who risked their lives, their freedom, and that of their loved ones to peacefully advocate for reforms and for government officials to be held accountable for their corruption and abuse of power. One such peaceful dissident is the writer Yassin al-Hajj Saleh, who happens to be the husband of Samira Khalil, one of the disappeared Duma Four. In 1980, he was arrested at the age of 19 for participating in banned political organizations and spent the following 16 years in brutal conditions until he was released from prison. This guy literally spent his entire early adulthood behind bars being tortured, purely for political activity. Yassin al-Hajj Saleh made a name for himself after his release from prison by writing several books about Syria and political opposition in the country, including The Impossible Revolution, Making Sense of the Syrian Tragedy. In that book, he writes, quote, Each activist, young ones in particular, are making a new reality in multiple ways by taking to the streets in defiance of a tyrannical power that has come to represent the past and working to change it, and then again through documentation, he or she creates a new reality and ensures that it becomes known and tangible by broadcasting it across public media outlets. Such actions provide relative protection for the movement, allowing it to address public opinion in the country and in the world, gaining the sympathy, gaining the sympathy of broad segments of Syrians, Arabs, and people further afield. If it were not for this vital central nervous system, i.e. the young men and women who cover their own activities on site, the uprising would be isolated and much easier for the regime to destroy." Unquote. Yassin al-Hajj Saleh continues his efforts to educate the public about Syria, as well as raise awareness for his still-missing wife Samira Khalil and the other members of the Duma Four, who disappeared in December 2013. The next bit is an excerpt from his appearance on the webinar, Syrian Revolution, A History from Below. Listeners of this podcast are highly encouraged to go check out their YouTube channel. This is Yassin Al-Hajj Saleh speaking. I differentiate between the three forms of violence, torture, war, and terror. Uh, uh, torture is the violence of the powerful against the weak. War between, between almost equal, uh, so, so uh, a gang against a gang, a state against a state, uh, uh, an army against an army, and terror is the violence of the weak against the powerful. The violence of the Assad uh, rule is torturous. It is not war. Uh, when you use chemical weapons and barrel bombs and scud missiles and uh, jet fighters, this is not war. This is not war. This is torture. And we know, of course, that the, we have industry of torture in the uh, security dungeons. So under a permanent state of exception, Syria has been a torture state. Long years in jail and a paradise of impunity. We lived under 
permanent civil war moving from cold to red hot one in 19, early 1980s and uh, in 2011 up to now uh, hundreds of thousands of victims. Syrians have been politicized, uh, I mean killed for political reasons and killed politically. Thank you for listening to What Happened to Syria, a podcast about Syria, the Syrian people, and their impact on the wider world since 2011. This was the first of what will be a recurring set of episodes in our show, where we examine people who participated in or were otherwise personally affected by the events we discuss. It's always good to take a moment and put a human face on things, rather than, rather than get bogged down in the dates and the trivia. We're going to look at more people who took great risks to oppose the regime and ended up paying a grave price for it, as well as, in, as, well as individuals within the regime and how they reacted when they were ordered to engage in atrocities in future episodes. If you think we got something wrong or you want to come on the show as a guest, go ahead and email us at whathappentosyriapodcast at gmail.com. It's spelled exactly the way it sounds, just without, a, without, the, exclam- without the question mark. What Happened to Syria podcast, one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at SyriaPod. That's at symbol, capital S, Syria, capital P, pod. So you can stay up to date with future episodes. If you liked what you heard and you want to support us, please consider going on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash whathappentosyria to support us for as little as $1 a month. You can access bonus episodes for just $3 a month and join our Discord server for $5. You can also get fan-requested content and a shout-out in each episode when you join in as a when you join as a VIP patron for $20. Thank you for all of our listeners. I'm Sean Hastings, the creator and host of What Happened to Syria. We'll see you next week.